You are listening to Sonic Entanglements. Welcome to Sonic Entanglements, a podcast about sound history in Southeast Asia. My name is Mele Yamomo, and in this series, I will speak with historians, musicologists, media scholars, and sound archivists. In this episode, I interviewed Dr. Gerda Leschtleitner, a former archivist at the Phonogram Archive of the Austrian Academy of Sciences, or what is commonly known as the Vienna Phonogram Archive. I recorded this conversation with Gerda in her office in Vienna on a warm late summer afternoon with the window open, so you might hear occasional office or outside street sounds during our talk. Could you please tell our listeners who you are? So my name is Gerda Lechleitner. I am born in Vienna and I'm working in Vienna, but it was always my wish to go far away and to live somewhere else. But life is sometimes differently. I stayed here for different reasons, but I had the wonder, wonderful opportunity to deal with the whole world when I was asked to start working in the Phonogram Archive. So I have studied musicology with focus on systematic musicology firstly and ethnomusicology and psychology. And I'm also a musician. I studied the piano as it is usual for female persons in a distinct level of society in a big city like Vienna and Vienna called itself as the city of music. I'm not a trained archivist, nor did I ever expect to work in scholarly surroundings because, well, you you want to be a scholar, you want to be a scientist. Uh, It depends on good luck if you can do it or not. Well, they were searching for a person dealing with the historical recordings, and it was the idea to publish these recordings. And then I was thinking, I'm not really trained in the historical dimension. I didn't work with historical sound carriers. I always had the feeling, well, we have new equipment, we have new technology. Why should we deal with these noisy sounds? What do they say to us? But I tried. It was in our proverb, a jump into the cold water. In the very first beginning, it was a a so-called pilot project, just to see what are these collections. Because to explain that the complete historical collections comprise around 4,000 recordings. Should we make a publication of all recordings of a complete edition or selectively only those which are known and which are important. Like the collection of uh, Abraham Zvi Edelson with his Jewish uh, recordings. Or Rudolf Trebitsch, who studied on the fringes of Europe, first starting in Greenland. Then going to the Celtic-speaking regions. And finally to the Basque countries. 
And exactly that remembers what was the interest in the very beginning of the sound archive. They didn't want to document what is around them, but they were interested in those sounds, languages, musics, mm -hmm. they didn't know. And therefore, it came into existence. Well, during my work, it turned out it only makes sense to make a complete edition. It was obvious that since the beginning of all scholarly efforts, we were very selective. Not looking in between, not looking the mergings or whatever. And the complete edition gives a completely different picture. And when I started, the first idea was just to publish the sounds without anything. Mm. And I thought, well, the sounds sounds noisy nobody can understand what is in that mm -hmm. it's so important to know why did they record it how did they record what was the impetus behind so i immediately was in the field of the history of the disciplines and as the phonogrammarchiv is an institute open to all disciplines just dealing with sounds I was in the center and I recognized the Phonogrammarchiv was a kind of meeting point where all these scientists met, where all the scholars had a big, big exchange about their experience here and there. So it was really important to have everything, to have a picture. What was the way people were searching in the beginning of the 20th century? Could you give us an overview of the content of the Vienna Phonogram Archive? That's not easy to answer because, as I said, our concept is we are open to all regions of the world. We are open to all disciplines. Mm -hmm. So you can't say what is the content itself. It's uh, to some extent a mirror of Austrian research because it was mostly that, that in the former times nobody could afford a own recording equipment. So the Phonogrammarchiv had the recording equipment. Researchers borrowed it and on the way back they had to deliver the recordings in the archive and in that way the archive was growing because mm -hmm. the very specific thing is when they founded the archive they didn't have any recording they founded the archive really from thinking about what could an archive look like we start with such an archive and the archive was growing with the activities of the research in contact with the phonogrammarchiv so you clearly can read who was interested in which region, in which topic, who is coming from which discipline. And this merging of, let's say, a general cultural interest, it's also going into biology. We have sounds of animals. We have cries. We have medical recordings, different things, really. But everything comes together to our first keyword, sound. Mm -hmm. And it's the premise that sound, or today a video recording with sound, is the primary source for any following research. It's completely interdisciplinary and that's also the shape of our colleagues here in the archive. We have musicologists, but we have ethnologists, we have linguists, and we are working together. And that's also a benefit that you learn from other methods, that you learn from other approaches. And that makes us a little bit different to those coming from one discipline.
that covers a lot of different fields. And I guess it speaks about the interdisciplinarity of the archive. And the, the Phonogram Archive never stopped making recordings and receiving recordings. And that's also a special thing. It, it's not a repository. It's really an active archive. And nowadays we have changed or we, were, we are in discussion how to change this kind of approaches of field research. And nowadays there's another keyword which really makes a lot of sense, which says collaborative fieldwork. Well, says nothing more than those you are interested in, give their expertise, their knowledge, put knowledges together. To me, it is important to consider sound as a source of knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it also goes in that direction that we uh, were speaking about, well, mostly the West was interested in the whole world. Not mm -hmm. The others were coming to Europe or America, seldom, but the others were going somewhere, which was good because they had the technique and they could document something which couldn't be documented at that time. But meanwhile, everyone can make the same and it's important that they do it. Mm -hmm. And to be on eye level with those for political reasons, you know better than me how it is feeling if you have been a colonized country. Colonization is out, we have post-colonialism, we have everything, but the lifestyle is still colonial if we take colonial as on blame of that, that we use something. And well, economy is the principle where one uses the other. <laughs> yeah, but we as scholars can discuss that. We are allowed to do it. And I think that's so important. What I hear from what you're saying is that there is, on the one hand, the physical materials that is stored in the archive. And on the other hand, there are documents of the context of these audio materials. And your job is to provide the context to these sound recordings. Exactly. And in that respect, you need sometimes other archives. You need a lot of reading. You need the feedback of those where the recordings were made. You need the descendants of those who were recorded. Mm -hmm. That's very, very important. And that's coming back to my dream of my life. I'm in contact with the whole world because of that work. If non-historians were asked about what an archive is, they might think of old documents or old recordings from a far away or distant past. With such perspective, what do you think is the relevance of the archive today? That's a very, very good question because, as you said, in other words, archives seem to be old-fashioned. And people working there, they are also old-fashioned to some extent. But at least in Europe, they were aware we have a long history and we need something to memorize. And memory is also a critical point in our human behavior because as long as it goes back, memory is not the truth at all. You have a feeling about something and so it was really an idea to have facts, just to have something which is fixed. And that was also the idea with the sounds, to fix them. Mm -hmm. Because, uh, well, when I'm thinking about the sound of a exotic or unknown language, I have an idea of it. But those who speak this language have a completely different feeling of these sounds. And bringing those things together, you need it fixed. Mm -hmm. So the relevance for today, I would say, because of these collecting activities since the 
17th century or even earlier when the first museums were founded, when archives were founded, libraries, well, you start with the moment when not only handwritten uh, manuscripts are available, but the printed ones, you could make copies. It's the same as in sound. A completely different awareness about these documents arose. And having these treasures or these documents, you shouldn't forget them. And nowadays, as we are living in a rather complicated world, it has completely changed because we know so much from each other and we know immediately everything from each other, but we can't define how to interpret news. That's really a misunderstanding. If someone says, no, only via internet we know from each other. They knew a lot from each other and you are really astonished how they had contact in former times when technology was really poor or even not existing. Mm -hmm. They had the contact, but it was completely different. Mm -hmm. And as our world is felt so complex by too big part of the society, I think in that respect, archives and institutions like that are even more important. Just to give a basis what is really going on and what have we done already and how was the development and why do we have problems with that culture, with that religion, just to name a few things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And therefore, I think it's not as old-fashioned as it might have sounded for a long time, because what we say, it's a safe place and nobody can go in. Archivists are just working and give numbers and make an order and so on. But nowadays, uh, archives are very active and they are going outside. Mm -hmm. And in my uh, opinion, uh, that started also with rethinking what knowledge archives produce. Because mm -hmm. archives, um, they are run by human beings and human beings do something with it, depending on their knowledge, on their work. Mm -hmm. And now we are discussing exactly that. It's not uh, clear that we make everything better now. No, but we are discussing it. And that also goes hand in hand with stressing that the context is so important. And in the moment, you don't know what you really record. Maybe even our conversation uh, will have another meaning let's say in two years because today it's rather fast that things mm. may change you've touched on a pertinent topic in what you said we are now confronted with the issues of the ethics and the politics of the archive as an institution these understandings often emerge anachronistically because these recordings were made in the past and today we have new theoretical tools in our ethical reconsideration of these historical artifacts in your work here at the vienna phonogram archive what challenges do you face with such issues? What are your experiences dealing with them? Mm -hmm. I know what you mean. Maybe one could say times became ripe for such considerations because when, for instance, before World War I, researchers mostly were conducted by missionaries. That's one part of our history we have to deal with. We always kept out missionaries, their role. It sounds so nice, I'm a missionary, I do the best for all the people, but nevertheless, they really tried to learn languages and to inform researchers coming there. So 
our famous Rudolf Pech, who visited between 1904 and 6 Papua New Guinea, Australia and this region, made an expedition to South Africa between 1907 and 09. He made recordings there. In South Africa, the Boers, the descendants of Dutch people, were the leading class and they were influenced by European inventions. They founded museums, they founded archives around 1900, and they documented their history. And Perch was interested in the Khoisan and the Bushman population. He was paid by the academy, and he was not only an ethnomusicologist, he was mostly an anthropologist. And he was interested in people of small size, because it was said, well, these are our ancestors, most ancestors, and how uh, human beings develop. So you need those. And a book came out by two colleagues from uh, Kapstadt uh, with the title Skeletons on the Cupboard. He was interested in bones, in the remains of people. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that he was a, a rubber. After burial, he let open the grave again and took out the bodies just for measurement and sent them to Vienna. Mm-hmm. Finally, that started a discussion and an exchange between the countries. Mm-hmm. And finally, these uh, bones or skeletons were brought back and were buried again. And to give an example how it was so obvious that we have to have a different approach today, the time span between those days where the hierarchies were different is big enough now to discuss it because it was politically a no-go to discuss a situation like that. But from the human perspective, it's clear that we have to accept moral rights first, which can't be written exactly. Legal rights, they are written, but how to deal with them, that's always a problem. And uh, as we see just today, you can change uh, laws. Does it make our world better? It depends on the people, how they deal with it. And as many laws as we have, nobody follows the laws. So in my opinion, it would be enough to have a frame and then to live in a humanistic way. But that's a too high word. You can't Mm -hmm. do it. So you need really strict rules how to follow that up. But on the other hand, these moral rights go in that direction, under which pressure is one asked to make a singing, a speaking or whatever. You kindly ask me if I would make a conversation with you. No problem. But any researcher has to ask that. You can't take your recording equipment and your code and make it in behind, not telling the people that you are here. And well, as you know, there are very personal, intimate situations. You shouldn't record without any questioning. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't do it to present it at a conference to other colleagues because as soon as 10 people are together, it's open and mm-hmm. it's public. Mm-hmm. So keeping those things in mind and well, you know, researchers always try to find the most outstanding, the most trendy, the most exciting to be important, to be special, mm-hmm. just to say that way. And archive 
archives in their responsibility against those who were recorded, against the contents which were recorded, they are really asked to keep that in moral and legal rights. Mm -hmm. And there is a wonderful book from Shuba Chaudhuri and Anthony Seeger about archives in the 21st century. And in course of a workshop, uh, people from different countries or continents even met and they played a role play starring the performer, the researcher and the archivist. They all had an idea about the situation and what they are asking for. And this relation between performer, researcher and archivist, that opens completely your eyes about what you are responsible for. Mm -hmm. And I only can recommend to read that mm -hmm. and, and then to transfer it in their own work. Mm -hmm. And I did it sometimes. And then you find new ways. Well, we now have mm -hmm. general data protection regulation, which is hard. We in the archive, we ask everybody, what is his name? How old is he? Which religion? Where is he a citizen from? Where is he living? To some extent, very personal data. Mm. But as long as they are kept in the archive, everything is okay. But it's not allowed to bring it outside. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference to our new world now. If we think about the internet and so on, and mm -hmm. if people post their wedding, their um, anniversary celebration, or their singing together on uh, YouTube or wherever, very seldom such data named. So you have the sound, but you have nothing behind the sound. And that's the difference between an archive and the YouTube. For instance, it's only one point. Mm -hmm. We have even more in the archive, but it's also important to know, well, in former times when they asked the performer, did you travel a lot? It was the information for the researchers. Well, he or she was in contact with many different languages, with many different cultures that shapes his or her own culture, certainly. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to know this background. But on the other hand, that's nothing for the public because otherwise you observe a person in his or her life, exactly. lifestyle. If I may steer our conversation now to the specific topic and geography of my research and the theme of this podcast, I am a sound scholar, if I may call myself that. Sound scholar? <laughs> and I focus on the region of Southeast Asia. Does the Vienna Phonogram Archive deal with this geographic area? And if so, what recordings do you have of the region? Yeah, not so much. Because, as I said, the Phonogrammarchiv is to some extent the mirror of Austrian research. Mm -hmm. uh, Austrian researchers didn't travel so much in that region. While we are in contact with different institutions today and we deliver our technical expertise and we support them in the digitizing process. But that's not the same as you are interested in a sound researcher of this region that's more or less the cooperation on a specific part of archival work. But as I already mentioned, Rudolf Pöch mm -hmm. stayed there really for a long time. Rudolf Pöch in 1904 or 5 dealt with his research method. He was interested in the different languages. As we all know, there are so many different languages <laughs> as mm -hmm. uh, nearly 
nowhere else in the world. So you are dealing with a language you don't know. He had his missionary, he learned him the main or the, the most important things that he can orientate himself. And then he came to the point, well, he was asking for some uh, parts of the body you can put on the finger on your nose, then the other one says nose in his language or ear or whatever. You can say shirt, you can say pencil or whatever. They don't have any, but this is a wrong <laughs> example. But he was interested in colors. Mm -hmm. And that was difficult for him to get out what they say to this and that color. And he had not so many colors with him. So he was sent different wools in different colors. And he put it there and asked them what they call these colors. And then it turned out that they have another feeling for colors than we have. They have some colors which were the same for them, which are completely different for us and vice versa. And I thought this kind of innovative helping how to come to a result is great. And I have this example of Don Niles. He is a very dear colleague and he helped me a lot with the Papua New Guinea collection. He was a specialist in that region. When we met the first time, he was an American scholar uh, researching in Papua New Guinea. Finally, he's Papua New Guinean. He stayed there. He never left this country. And he made also an archive there. And he uses our recordings as well as part of the archive or the very first beginning. Because as I said already, it was only our possibility to document sounds at that time. It was not possible for the population in Papua New I want to go back to your definition of your task here at the Archive. You said that your job is to disclose your collection to the scientific and academic community. So you have the double role of being an archivist and a scholar. What are the challenges of someone who organizes the collection while being someone who also reflects theoretically and conceptually about the Archive? Uh, that's a very good question and I had a, I must say, hard experience when I was invited to a workshop in Berlin. Well, we were about 10 participants and on the one hand side there were the scholars and on the other side there were the archivists and I was an archivist and as an archivist we deliver the sources and we deliver the documentation. And they really asked, for instance, that all recordings should be transcribed and translated. So, well, it is interesting to know texts of songs, to know the texts they were spoken and nobody knows all languages, but that's not the work of an archivist. It's impossible. As soon as you are dealing with it, then you have to either learn the language or you need a specialist. In any case, I found myself in a very unequal situation. And when I started attending conferences, I had really the feeling, well, you are archivist, you are dealing with recordings made by others. That's not the same. We are the researchers, we are the field workers, etc. But I attended conferences more and more. 
And meanwhile, everyone is astonished to deal with topics, lively questions, which you can discuss on basis of historical recordings. You have also published significantly on this topic. So we can say that you are one of the key thinkers in the field of sound archiving. I really have to confess that I insisted I have to have this contact with other colleagues mm. and I have to get this feedback. And that is the reason that then I was asked to publish this and that. And I have had a wonderful teacher mm. and that was Susanne Ziegler from the Berlin Phonogram Archiv because they started a little bit earlier with their work on the cylinder collection and we were in big, big exchange and she knew such a lot about the histories of the archives and the history of different archives in Europe are very intertwined. And I followed her and maybe sometimes I have nowadays different aspects than she has. But in the very first beginning, I was so happy to get to know her and we are still in close contact. And I am extremely grateful to her what she could tell me how to deal with that. We began this conversation with you saying that it was your dream to travel the world. And while you may not have really left Vienna as your place of work, you ended up traveling to the different parts of the globe through the sounds you work with here at the Vienna Phonogram Archive. And you spoke about international collaborations. Yeah. That speaks a lot about your character as a cosmopolitan scholar who sees beyond the national borders. Thank you very much for this conclusion. Dr. Lesh Leitner, Gerda, thank you very much for your time. Thank you very much for asking me such questions. This conversation with Dr. Gerda Leschleitner was made in October 2018. Gerda retired from her post as archivist of the Vienna Phonogram Archive in June 2020, but she remains an active member of the International Council for Traditional Music as the co-chair of the study group on historical sources, as well as a project partner of Sonic Entanglements. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Sonic Entanglements podcast. I am your host and producer, Mille Yamomo. Thijs van der Geest is our sound engineer and sound editor. And Jean Bersena is our publicity manager. Our theme music is created by Marcus Hoogerforst. This podcast is funded by the Dutch Research Organization. If you would like to listen to other episodes of this program, subscribe to Sonic Entanglements at Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Pocket Casts. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more, you can head over to sonic-entanglements.com.